You're listening to The Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Golseth. It is the first week of the month. That means it is our opportunity to dig into searching the scriptures in the May issue of The Lutheran Witness. Thanks to Concordia University, Wisconsin for your support of The Coffee Hour. Find out more about Concordia University, Wisconsin at cuw.edu. Live Uncommon. Joining us today, the Reverend Roy Askins, Managing Editor for The Lutheran Witness. Pastor Askins, welcome back. Thank you, Andy. Great to be here. I am uh, looking forward to searching the scriptures with you again and continuing in this series in the creed. Um, It's just, it's so helpful and insightful. Uh, Where do we go in the creed this time? So this time we're moving into the passage of the creed that says, uh, he referring to Jesus descended into hell the third day he rose again from the dead. So as you mentioned, we're once again, continuing this study, kind of going phrase by phrase through the creeds and showing how uh, through the, through the creed, showing how each of these phrases actually comes from the scripture. This is not something we just kind of made up, but this is actually a summary of, of scriptural teaching and scriptural doctrine. And what we see here in this transition, in this descent in the hell is the transition from the two states uh, of Christ, the humiliation and the exaltation of Jesus Christ. And here we have to, I actually have to uh, admit an error and a mistake as I was uh, going through and reading this. If you're reading the first or the second sentence of the intro to the searching the scriptures, uh, I say his descent into hell marks the beginning of his exaltation, not exaltation, Oops. that you should be an A. Now I did it correct in the, in the end. So uh, there's a copy editing error uh, there in the uh, from the searching the scriptures, but we're moving here from his humiliation to his exaltation. We're moving from uh, his willing refraining from his use of divine powers into his uh, full exaltation um, and and glorification. Now, this passage itself, as we were kind of talking about a little earlier, is a little difficult. There's a lot of uh, that goes into this discussion of the descent into hell. In fact, uh, so much so that in the Book of Concord, which is our Lutheran uh, teachings, Lutheran uh, basically summary of Lutheran doctrine and teachings. Uh, from 1580, that the formula of Concord actually includes a particular article on the descent into hell. And it actually says, basically, <laughs> you shouldn't speculate on this stuff. Just believe it and confess it because this is what the scripture says. And uh, don't go spending too much time talking about it. So we're going to spend a whole bunch of time talking about it today. <laughs> but uh, the, the, but it, the, the main point, of course, being uh, that uh, this move from the humiliation to exaltation uh, is a source of comfort for us because uh, in this descent into hell, we see Christ conquering of Satan, uh, conquering of death and hell, uh, enduring the torments of hell for you, which actually happened in the humiliation. Now he's conquering this. And, and, and the result of this is that you, as the child of God, have nothing to fear. So that's kind of where we're going with all this stuff. And we're going to dive right in. Uh, read First Peter 3, 18 to 21. Who are the spirits in prison? What did Jesus declare to them? What does it have to do with baptism? So uh, this passage here, the descent into hell, is a is a fantastic passage for considering the fact that uh, even really just one passage of scripture is capable of establishing a doctrine. Uh, the fact of the matter is, when we talk about Christ's descent into hell, this is really the only passage from First Peter chapter three that discusses his descent into hell. And I'm going to read it here for you. Um, but this one passage, this one verse, is enough to establish this this doctrine. So 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 through 21. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, 
but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven, is at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to him. Now, that last bit, verse 22, uh, that's next month's study. That's the ascension. <laughs> we'll get into that later. Let's uh, dive a bit into this um, this teaching on Christ's descent uh, into hell. So uh, beginning at verse 18, we're actually, you know, we, we've already talked about his suffering for sins. This is suffering on, on the cross. He being the righteous, we being the unrighteous, wisely so might uh, bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh. Once again, this was last month's study, uh, talking about Christ's uh, uh, suffering and death. But then it continues, but made alive in the spirit in which he went and proclaimed the spirits in prison. So uh, what we confess then as Lutherans and according to the scriptures is that Christ descended bodily into hell. This wasn't just a spiritual uh, descent into hell, but he was raised from the dead. And after being raised from the dead, he actually descends into hell before he appears to his disciples. So it is in his body after he is uh, resuscitated that he actually descends into hell. And then it says, uh, in, in the spirit, he descends to hell and uh, proclaims to the spirits in prison. Now, this becomes the great debate. What does Jesus <laughs> proclaim to the spirits in prison? Well, does he preach the gospel? Does he preach the law? Uh, and there's a whole bunch of heresies around all of this stuff. And this is, I think, why ultimately the Book of Concord says, don't speculate too much on this stuff. Uh, just stick to what the scripture says here. But uh, does he proclaim the gospel? Actually, he does not proclaim the gospel. Um, he actually proclaims the law and his conquering over over, over Satan. And where do we see this? Well, he's proclaiming to those uh, who uh, in the days of Noah, as uh, St. Peter says, uh, did not obey. Those who rejected uh, the proclamation that Christ was going to, uh, or that God was going to save Noah and, the, and, and those who trusted in him, they rejected this, they rejected God's gifts. And so it is to those that Jesus goes, they've already, uh, they've already died. They've already, uh, there are no, this isn't a second chance type of a thing. Uh, he goes to to hell to proclaim his victory over them and over or over death uh, and hell and his victory over Satan. Uh, and so it is thus in this sense, uh, a word of warning and law. Um, and, and then as we, th th this is, um, so, so this is, this is what he goes to proclaim. Now, what does this have to do with baptism? Well, uh, baptism, St. Paul says, or St. Peter says, uh, corresponds to this to this, uh, this, the ark, which was, which saved eight people. Baptism now saves you. Those of us who have been washed in baptism, we have had the, uh, our sins washed on off of us. Uh, and we now have new life in Jesus Christ, this appeal to God for a good conscience. So Christ, uh, suffered the pangs of hell and death for you on the cross. He goes and declares his victory, uh, over Satan and hell and death. And now you are the beneficiary of this, of this proclamation and this work that he's done for you, uh, by consequence or as a consequence of uh, your baptism. Amen. You ready for question two? I think so. <laughs> <laughs> All right, read Matthew uh, chapter 10, verse 25, and chapter 25, 41 to 43. What is hell? And then read Matthew 27, 46. When did Jesus experience the pangs and sufferings of hell? So I have to be honest here again, too. This is maybe a copy editing mistake. Uh, <laughs> I went back and read Matthew 10, verse 25. And uh, I honestly don't know why I included that in there. So we're just going to go to Matthew <laughs> chapter 25, verse 41 to 44, and uh, and we'll go from there. So uh, Matthew chapter 10, verses, uh, I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 25, verses 41 and following. 
then Jesus is teaching here on the, uh, this is the, uh, the separating of the sheep and the goats on his uh, right and the left hand, um, the final judgment. And he says, then he'll say to those on his left, okay, so those on his right are the sheep, those are his children. Uh, now he's speaking to those on his left. Uh, he says, depart from me, cursed, uh, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, you did not take me in and so forth and so on. And then he concludes at verse 46, uh, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Okay, so this is kind of the standard picture that we have of of hell, right? It's a place of fire and torment. Uh, and other passages earlier, actually, in chapter verse 25, verse 30, uh, he talks about uh, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So uh, this idea of hell is a place of torment and suffering. Now, uh, we have great imaginations, and so you can find all sorts of different pictures of what hell and what hell is like. Uh, as if you go to the movies, I mean, even classic works such as Dante's Inferno, um, all these these type of things. One of the the ideas that has actually most, uh, I suppose, intrigued me, and that we're going to get get to here when we talk about Matthew chapter twenty seven, is Lewis's portrayal of hell in his book, um, The Great Divorce. Uh, are you familiar? Are there, either of you familiar with how he portrays hell in this? I am not a C.S. Lewis nerd yet. <laughs> I'm working. We'll make you a nerd. We'll make you a nerd. Yes. So, so the way he portrays, and once again, I want to be clear that this is not necessarily a biblical picture, right? This is C.S. Lewis's imagination as mm -hmm. he's talking about this, mm -hmm. but he portrays that uh, hell as the sense of extreme and perfect isolation, right? The one who lives for himself and solely for himself uh, and doesn't need God. And so God finally says, fine, live in your own self-isolation, uh, be uh, totally cut off, right? not only from those around you, from humans, but even from myself. I am hiding myself from you and you no longer uh, can can be in, in, not simply my presence, but I, I am not uh, there in, in grace and mercy for you. And there is a sense in which uh, isolation or this this uh, turning away from of God is in, sin, in a sense uh, what hell is. And uh, the reason we, we can say this is we look at Matthew chapter 27, verse 46, and this is the death of Jesus, right? Um, from the sixth hour, there was darkness over the whole land till the ninth hour. About the ninth hour, Jesus cries out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so we do also see this idea of hell uh, being that place of isolation and separation from God. He is not there for us in 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 the mercy in mercy and and to care for us and to provide for us. And so this is what we see. Uh, this is where Jesus actually suffers the pangs of hell. Is in this uh, this forsaking by God uh, of His Son Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? Yeah. Think so. Um, the other, the other thing here. This then introduces a number of questions about how does God forsake Himself? Right. Mm -hmm. We we confess also in this creed, as we've talked about, Jesus is truly God, truly man. So how does God forsake Himself? Well, uh, I'm actually going to turn to Luther here, who has a great explanation of this and talking about this. Um, and this is actually from. Uh, let's see here. I think it's from quoted in uh, Pieper's Dogmatics, but uh, Luther, he writes, and Christ has truly been forsaken of God, not in such a way that the deity was separated from the humanity, but that the deity withdrew into itself and hid itself 
So the righteous and innocent man had to tremble and fear like a poor condemned sinner, and in his tender innocent heart had to feel God's wrath and judgment over sin, taste for us eternal death and damnation, and in short, suffer all that a condemned sinner has deserved and must suffer eternally. Okay, so this is the picture that Luther portrays of this forsaking. Not that, not that uh, Jesus is no longer God. He is, in fact, God, but the deity hides himself and the man uh, suffers this, this, uh, this fear and eternal death and damnation on our behalf. So this is, this is where Jesus uh, suffers hell and endures the punishments of hell and pangs of hell for us. Let's do one more question before we go to break. Mm-hmm. Read Philippians 2, 5 through 11. How are the two states of Christ, humiliation and exaltation, described? In what state will Christ return as judge? So this uh, passage, uh, Philippians chapter 2, is a wonderful passage from uh, St. Paul's writings, of course. And uh, it's it's often portrayed as a hymn, a beautiful hymn, uh, potentially even a creed of the church. And here's what he writes. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he is in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Okay, so you have this picture then of Jesus. He's coming as a human being. He is, uh, St. Paul uses the language of emptying himself, that is, uh, he is refraining from the full use of his divine powers, uh, humbles himself by becoming, uh, I mean, he's God, right? He humbles himself uh, even as God to become obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And as a consequence of the suffering, God exalts him, moves into the state of exaltation, which then we confess is uh, his descent into hell where he proclaims his victory over hell, uh, exalts him and gives him uh, the name that is above every name. That at, at that name, every knee, whether in heaven, on earth, above the earth, wherever it is, right? Heaven, hell, earth, creation, every knee bows at the name of Jesus Christ, the glory of the Father. And it is in this state of exaltation, uh, in this state as um, the one who has the name that is above every name, that he will uh, come and judge the world. Hmm. We have more to study in Searching the Scriptures in the May issue of The Lutheran Witness. We're talking with the Reverend Roy Askins, Managing Editor for The Lutheran Witness. You're listening to The Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Golseth. You're a miracle. You know that, right? A living, breathing, one-of-a-kind miracle. You were created to stand apart, to share your gifts in the service of others, to make an uncommon impact in a common world. And at Concordia University, it's our mission to help you do that, to live uncommon. To learn more about Concordia, go to cuw.edu. Welcome back to the Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Golseth. We are searching the scriptures in the May issue of The Lutheran Witness with the Reverend Roy Askins. Pastor Askins, you ready for question four? I'm ready. Let's do it. All right. Read 1 Corinthians chapter 15, all of it. Why is Jesus' resurrection important? And why does Paul consider it to be a central teaching of 
the faith. So here I'm going to uh, not do, I'm going to tell you to do what I don't do. I'm not actually going to read the whole thing for you. <laughs> uh, it's a fantastic passage. Um, but, uh, and what you'll get out of this is just the central uh, and utter importance of the resurrection of Jesus Christ as a, as a, a doctrine and teaching of the Christian faith. This is, in fact, the second half of, of the portion of the creed that we're studying today. Uh, he descended to hell's first part, the second part, uh, the third day he rose again from the dead. And, uh, and let's actually just dig into this a little bit and kind of work our way through this passage. So first uh, Corinthians chapter 15, uh, kind of beginning at verse three, for I delivered to you as of first importance, what I also received. And here we're also going to get another, what seems to me to be a little bit of a creed here, kind of a, um, a summary of the major points of Christian doctrine, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the 12. Okay. So in other words, uh, St. Paul setting out, this is not a surprise, right? We The scriptures, in fact, predicted that uh, he would die for our sins and that he would be raised on the third day in accordance with, our, with the scriptures, right? So we knew this was going to happen. It in fact happens. And then Jesus goes and does some wonderful things. He appears to Cephas. Uh, this is a reference to Peter. Uh, one of Peter's names is, is uh, Cephas, a uh, rock. Uh, and then to the 12, so the rest of the disciples. And then uh, Paul continues. He appeared to more than 500 brothers of at uh, one time, most of whom are still alive. In other words, he's saying, you know what? You can still go talk to these people. You, They, they saw him. They witnessed to him. Uh, and even, in fact, uh, these disciples, uh, through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, right, write down this, this collection of the Gospels for us. You can go talk to these people and guess what they're going to tell you. Yes, he died. Yes, he was truly dead. And guess what? Yes, he rose from the dead. We saw him. We touched him. We watched him eat the fish, right? Uh, so forth and so on. So you can actually still go and, and uh, make an accounting of these things uh, at the time of, of St. Paul's writing this year. He continues, uh, though some have fallen asleep, then he appeared to James, then to all of the apostles. And last of all, to one untimely born, St. Paul says, he appeared also to me. So, so St. Paul even sees him uh, as in his resurrected body, right? Okay, so this is establishing the 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 groundwork uh, that, in fact, Christ did rise from the dead. We have all of these people who have seen this. They will testify to this. Now, he goes on a little bit later to explain why this is a central, central tenet, a central teaching and doctrine of the Christian faith. And for this, we'll go to verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, St. Paul writes, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We have even been found to be misrepresenting God because we testify that uh, about God that he raised Christ, who he, he did not raise, if it, if it is true that the dead are not raised. It gets kind of convoluted in here. <laughs> but the point being, um, uh, the, how can you say that Christ has not been raised from the dead? He, in fact, concludes this, this section with... Um, if in Christ we have hope and this life only, we are all people the most to be pitied. Uh, but if in fact Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruit of those who fall asleep. For as uh, by man came death, by a man came also the resurrection of the dead. Okay, so in other words, uh, this central teaching of the faith is that Christ was raised from the dead and this resurrection is given to us and that this is a physical resurrection, not merely a, a spiritual representation, not merely a spiritual resurrection, not a metaphorical resurrection, but Christ was in fact raised from the dead. Death came by one man, by Adam uh, in the Garden of Eden. He partook of the fruit and brought death to all mankind. Uh, but now we have life and physical life 
uh, and the promise of this physical life in Jesus Christ. Now, this is a huge point uh, that we really need to be careful about and, and make, because there are those who would take this idea of, of Christ's resurrection and simply make it a, a metaphor, uh, simply uh, say, you know, he didn't actually die from the dead. In a recent um, article from a, a magazine that I will remain nameless, um, <laughs> this is what they write about the resurrection. They say, resurrection is not about returning to our former society, but about reordering our society closer to God's kingdom of peace, love, and justice. Resurrection comes about through the death of old ways of being and seeing and through allowing the Spirit to stretch and shape and mold us into a new creation. Okay, there's no connection here in the entire article to the actual physical resurrection of Jesus Christ. For them, uh, this resurrection is simply uh, a new life that we live uh, for social justice causes or whatever this might be. Uh, the fact of the matter is, though, as we look at St. Paul and what he's saying about Jesus' resurrection from the dead, he's saying that Jesus physically rose from the dead and that this is, is essential to the Christian faith because that is also the promise that he makes for us. Uh, in fact, I would say that if the resurrection of Jesus is just about transforming our lives in accordance with uh, racial and social justice movements, then we are of the most to be pitied. Uh, the, the promise for us is that uh, we have partaken of his life and he also will give us this eternal life with him forever. So uh, this is a really kind of important point that we need to make sure we hit, that Christ physically rose from the dead and also promises this to us. Shall we move on to question five? Sure. All right. Read John 14, verse 19. What does Jesus' victory over death and the grave mean for you? So in case we didn't hit it hard enough, we're going <laughs> to hit it again. Uh, this is uh, John. So John 14, verse 19. Uh, this is Jesus teaching the disciples. He's in the upper room, uh, or he's in he's in the room the, in, with the Passover uh, just prior to his his death, uh, his suffering and death. And he's teaching them. And this is what he says: Yet in a little while, the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live; you also will live. Okay. So uh, later on in John chapter 16, he does this thing where he says, uh, you'll see me now in a little while you won't see me and then you will see me and then you won't see me. And he kind of goes <laughs> back and forth. This is kind of a preview of what's coming here in chapter 14. And he's talking about, of course, his death. The world will not see me anymore because they're going to crucify him. He's going to to die and then eventually ascend. But his his disciples will continue to see him and they will see him. And this is bringing in another uh, gospel, Matthew chapter 28, uh, because he promises to be present among them uh, in his word and sacraments. Uh, and the promise here then for them is because he lives and because they are connected to him uh, through through baptism, through the preaching of his word, through his sacrament, they also will live. And this is, once again, not simply just a, a uh, changed um, uh, life here on earth, but is in fact the promise of a resurrected life, uh, eternal life with him uh, in, in heaven. And not just metaphorically speaking. Yeah, not just <laughs> metaphorically speaking, right. An, an actual <laughs> physical eternal life with him in heaven. What's interesting, uh, if I can here, um, I was looking at this and uh, he says, because I live, um, uh, you also will live. And then he goes on and says, I am my father and you, I and you and you and me. And then he says later on, I'm trying to find his uh, verse uh, 23. Jesus says, uh, my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Now this word home is in fact the same word he uses for room in earlier in chapter 14, where he says, in my father's house are many rooms. Uh, and so he's actually saying, we're going to make our room with you, and then you will one day live in the eternal rooms uh, in heaven as well, physically, not just metaphorically, but actual real, real existence there. 
All right. Last question, number six. Ready? Sure. Let's go. Read Romans chapter six, verses one through 14. What does God promise those who are baptized into Christ Jesus? Romans chapter six. Uh, this is a passage that many of us know uh, from confirmation days. Uh, wonderful passage. Let's read this. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can he who died in sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. I just kind of begin with that uh, little bit uh, there. Uh, just prior to chapter 6 here, uh, St. Paul was talking about um, uh, how grace comes and, and f- uh, gives us forgiveness and increases righteousness, right? Righteousness leading to eternal life. And so my sinful flesh says, well, if I get grace and righteousness because I sinned, maybe I should sin more so that I can get more grace and righteousness. And of course, this is what St. Paul is saying. No, of course not. This cannot be the case. Why is this? Because you are a new creation. You have died to sin by your baptism. You have actually connected to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And as one who has died to sin, you no longer desire to be sinful, to live in the sinful life. That is not who you are uh, because you have already died to your sin. And in place of that sin, he took your sin. In place of that sin, he gives you his perfect life. And so now you are a new forgiven child of God. Um, You have newness of life in him uh, that begins now, right? Of course, uh, this is a, a, we have, we have, connected to him. We've died. We have a newness of, of life with him, uh, but we will have an eternal life with him as well because we are connected not simply uh, to his death, but then also to his resurrection life. And that's the exact point that St. Paul makes in verse five. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Uh, and so this is uh, not simply a, as we talked about time and time again, a metaphorical resurrection, but in fact, a true physical resurrection that we will enjoy with him uh, on the last day. Amen. Thanks be to God. Pastor Askins, uh, how do we find the searching the scriptures and, and, and the Lutheran the Lutheran witness? You can find the Lutheran witness in a number of ways. Uh, if you want to subscribe, you can actually get it uh, in print by going to cph.org slash witness and subscribing there. We also have lots of great content on the Lutheran witness website, which is witness.lcms.org. Or you Very can good. contact me, roy.askins at lcms.org. There's a direct line right there, roy.askins at lcms.org. Thanks so much, Pastor Askins, for a great study in God's Word again this month's issue of The Lutheran Witness, Searching the Scriptures. You've been listening to The Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Golseth. The Coffee Hour with Andy and Sarah is a production of KFUO. To support the Coffee Hour and KFUO Radio, visit KFUO.org. You can also text KFUO to 41444 or send an email to gifts at KFUO.org. And you can call us at 800-844-0524. KFUO. Christ for you. Anytime. Anywhere. Anywhere.